Republicans to wake up. Is what the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Today's program made possible through the generosity of Dan Blick, David Paulson, and James Swift. They're voluntary subscribers to the Peter B. Collins Show. If you're able and you'd like to, just go to PeterBCollins.com. Click on the tab that says you can help. Our voluntary subscriptions start as low as $5 a month. In our second segment today, we're going to talk about a proposal to legalize online poker in California. Might raise as much as a half billion dollars a year for the cash-starved state. And, of course, people are already betting online and the money's going offshore. Melanie Brenner, a proponent of a bill before the state Senate, will join us. And one of my buddies who plays a lot of poker, Mark Lewis, is going to check in and offer his comments, too. Ah, but first, let's check on the safety, privacy, and security of your connection to the Internet. So you got the smartphone. Uh, If you're really hip, you've got an iPad Touch and or iPod Touch. See, I get those things mixed up. The iPad, I don't think it's called the Touch. It's the iPod Touch. And, of course, I got a Facebook account. I have a Twitter account, and I don't tweet very much. And there's been a lot of coverage lately about security risks that you take when you post photos online, when you tell your personal secrets to people who you think uh, are limited to approved friends. And joining us now is an attorney and uh, Internet media attorney and online journalist, Lisa Barodkin. And we've interrupted her as she is attending the Computers, Freedom, and Privacy Conference right now at San Jose State University. Lisa, thanks for taking time to talk with us. Oh, you're welcome, Peter. Thanks for having me on. Now, I I took a look at your site, and one of the things I notice is that, like me, uh, you're not that thrilled with Facebook. Uh, You seem to uh, have issues with it, and I saw a post where you said you finally found a positive use for it, a good friend of yours uh, who posted a video before he died on vacation in Costa Rica. Uh, Tell me a little bit about your own relationship with the web and social networking in particular. Well, I've been active and interested in the web uh, for many years, since the mid-90s. I think I first experienced the web in the early days of Archie and FTP protocols. 
I was an early contributor to Usenet, mostly on music discussion groups. And after I went to law school, I got very interested in intellectual property law and particularly in the emerging field of Internet law. Mm -hmm. My early practice uh, included representation of domain name registrar network solutions and also advising America online. And since then, I've covered a variety of areas, including entertainment and tech. And lately, I've been doing a lot of Internet impact litigation, mostly concerning the rights and of individuals um, against some of the uh, really sort of borderline uses of the Internet, mm-hmm. um, both by companies and by other private businesses. Yeah. And it is quite a world out there, and most people just plunge in and don't seem to consider, uh, first of all, their rights, and maybe even rights that they might be violating when they post a clip from The Daily Show to YouTube. Uh, there are all kinds of areas in the wild, wild west of the World Wide Web where uh, we're not really sure of what the rules are, what the laws are, or what the unintended consequences might be. That's absolutely right, and uh, that's one of the things we're trying to accomplish at this conference, Um, basically to try to map out from the user's point of view what should our rights and what should our expectations be. And it is a total clash of cultures, everything from constitutional law to tech startup culture from Silicon Valley to traditional intellectual property law principles and just everyday user experience. And it's all getting mixed together and remixed, and we're trying to make some sense out of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, to my original question, what's your uh, feeling about Facebook? I have two feelings about it, and I'm glad that you read my blog post um, because it was interesting timing, just as all this sort of hailstorm of controversy was finally exploding um, regarding Facebook's privacy policies. Um, As you mentioned, a friend of mine passed away. And uh, what I realized was being so connected through social media, like it or not, um, for better or for worse, I mean, they'd collected quite a bit of personal data about my friend, and I was instantly connected with people who also knew him. And, uh, yeah, it was a really different experience. I'm going through that in real time, sharing memories and breaking the news. It was actually from a Facebook event that I learned of my friends passing away. And, uh, yeah, and life has changed permanently for the good, better, for the better or for worse. Um, So my feelings are ambivalent. Um, It has tremendous social power. It has the ability to do a tremendous amount of social good. But from a legal and policy perspective, I am, you know, I'm actually still shocked at the audacity of just a few handful of people who think that they can shape our privacy expectations. It's an interesting time we live in. Indeed. And uh, I I have my own kind of tortuous relationship because I have a personal Facebook page and I have a fan page for the radio show. And I do see the value of communicating with people and one of the awkward things that, that I feel is that, uh, and, and, you know, I've been in radio a long time. I've got a big ego. I have no pr- problem promoting myself. But I feel like a lot of what is on Facebook is self-promotion. And I tend to back off from that because I, I feel like it's much more of a, a, an informal communication system that isn't really, at least the, the, the people who I have as friends, don't tend to use it. 
to make themselves look good or to promote themselves, often they put up silly things that might have been uh, fodder for America's Funniest Home Videos. <laughs> I think that's true, and I think you've touched on something that's very integral to the new Web 2.0 social media culture. People really value authenticity, and I think that's kind of the problem with Facebook's privacy changes. I mean, if you don't like it when a few bad users use social media to self-promote too much for their own private agendas, um, feel you know, imagine how betrayed we all feel over 500 million users. Facebook is finally, you know, openly, transparently selling us out. And, you know, ultimately, I think when it reaches a critical mass, the bad will drive out the good and people start to leave. And we've seen the beginnings of that. Yeah, I I have recently heard of people uh, getting out of Facebook, uh, standing down, as it were. And I had a recent experience. It was uh, back in March. I went to speak to a group of graduating seniors at Sonoma State University. And I really stepped in it because I said... Anybody here experiencing Facebook fatigue? (laughs) Well, they thought I was from Mars or something because they said, oh, no, man, we live there. And a young woman raised her hand and she said, look, I don't even know my friend's email addresses anymore. I only uh, communicate through Facebook to them. She said, you know, I send emails to my parents and other old people. <laughs> so that was uh, an eye-opener for me. But, but Lisa, take a moment here to explain to listeners what can go wrong and how either identity theft or violation of privacy, um, information that you thought could only be seen by friends and people you approved, uh, could be scrutinized by a potential employer. Uh, what what are some of the uh, the the nefarious ends that occur to people who rather innocently use these online networks? Well, I think the first thing is that users should watch out for a false sense of security. I think that the impression is initially perhaps cultivated by Facebook that just because you need to log in to use it, things that you put in there might remain on the inside, and that's just not true anymore. One of the biggest examples is as you grow your network, you might have 100, 200, 300 friends, and any of them can tag you in any picture that goes up even before you know it's up. And it doesn't require your consent. All it requires is you are a connection of theirs on Facebook. Now, added to that is the fact that now Facebook has assigned a unique web address link to every photo that's ever put on Facebook, which means even if somebody is not your friend, um, all they have to do is copy and paste that link and add it anywhere on the Internet, and that photo could be all over the world before you even know it's up there. And nobody has to ask your permission to do that. Very interesting. And uh, what, what's kind of a worst case that you've seen where somebody was trusting that and a photo or other bit of information was used in a way that uh, they didn't like or, or didn't expect? Well, I think not so much myself personally, but I think in the news there's been horrible cases um, where people have identified other people's whereabouts. There's been terrible cyber-stalking cases 
Um, there's been cases of false identity and people meeting, but it is fairly frightening when you add it all up together. You know, geolocation, identification, the digital footprints we all create, it's enough as it is, but when big influential aggregators such as Facebook are not honest about what they intend to do with your data and exactly who of their partners they intend to share it with, I mean, you don't know what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Australia has now even approved uh, Facebook as a way of serving legal process. So it is a recognition of the reality um, that it plays in our lives. And I think fewer and fewer people are saying things like, oh, don't take Facebook too seriously. I mean, it is serious business, and it's seriously shaping how we interact with each other. Now, I I recently downloaded the policies of Facebook regarding their cooperation and collaboration with law enforcement. And it was interesting in a couple of ways, because certainly if I use Facebook to uh, promote a false identity, use that identity to commit a crime, I would certainly expect law enforcement to be able to uncover that. At the same time, uh, we do want to create a a zone of privacy and an expectation of privacy. And so Facebook's policy is that if a law enforcement agency wants information, they have to uh, provide a subpoena or a warrant or another court order. Um, But it allowed us how that if that was in process that Facebook was likely to cooperate and give the information even before they received uh, a court order to do so. And furthermore, they, they said that they charge fees uh, to law enforcement uh, for the time it takes them to research, collect, and then uh, distribute this information. So it, it kind of sounded like a little side business where... <laughs> Uh, it, it appeared that Facebook was eager to cooperate, uh, even maybe a little bit beyond the letter of the law, and that they saw this as a potential revenue stream, if not profit center. Well, Peter, that's a really insightful take. Um, I read a lot of analysis about Facebook and their terms of use and their uh, cooperation policies, but I don't think anyone's ever mentioned the idea that when you style yourself as an information broker and a data collector, you are also in a position to literally broker that information out. While it's customary um, in legal cases to, uh, just like you get a witness fee, you also can get reimbursement for um, the cost of reproducing records that are subpoenaed. I think the other point you make that's very interesting is they won't necessarily even wait for the subpoena. So basically, um, you have someone like Facebook who's collecting a lot of data about people, and they are not really transparent or necessarily following due process before giving up that information. And that's one of the things that we were just talking about here at the Computers Freedom and Privacy Conference when you called and I stepped out, which is you have a governmental or quasi-governmental body collecting a lot of personal data and then using it in ways that the original user never even intended, using it to control and conduct surveillance on others. Well, and this leads to some darker issues. I'm, I'm a bit of a Fourth Amendment fanatic, uh, Lisa, and I'm deeply offended at the way our Fourth Amendment rights have been rolled back, and we're not allowed to sue over them because the 
The telephone companies were granted immunity, and the government uh, declares state secret privilege on the massive wiretapping and interception of emails that continues to this day. Uh, the other part that is troubling for me is the Patriot Act's uh, uh, allowance of national security letters, and then the way Attorney General Mukasey actually just extended that policy unilaterally so that uh, FBI agents can now issue what are essentially their own warrants, uh, no-knock letters, where they can go to a third party, to a bank, to a library, or to Facebook or Google, and uh, serve them with a demand the party that receives that demand is not allowed to notify me that uh, I'm the subject of some sort of investigation. And uh, there are other requirements that, again, uh, fly directly in the face of what I see as our Fourth Amendment rights. So I'd like to hear your comments on that, because uh, I, I think that's the, the darker area of uh, what I consider to be a, a creeping police state, uh, where our our rights have been rolled back significantly, and the Internet uh, and, and our use of it makes it that much easier for law enforcement to use these secret approaches. Well, bravo, Peter. I mean, you've exactly connected all of the dots that are the reason that we are here today. Um, the courts just don't move fast enough. Um, Congress doesn't move fast enough. There isn't meaningful review. There isn't meaningful commentary from the vast populations that are affected. And this is enabled by technology now. Um, the big technology companies and social networks are sort of stepping in to the role of assisting law enforcement. And then when you have someone like a single FBI agent exercising what's essentially prosecutorial discretion, um, you have to question, you know, what are we doing? What are people doing about it? And that's why we want to draft a really strong uh, user-generated Bill of Rights, because the actual Bill of Rights, like the Fourth Amendment, is not being protected. It's not being respected. Um, and this entire sort of traditional um, rights analysis that is so fundamental to the American system of justice has been sort of displaced into the Internet, where things are not transparent. People don't understand the technology. So today we have people like, or not today, this week we have people like the general counsel of Google here to talk about these kinds of issues with us. We have uh, privacy policy um, executives from Facebook, and we intend to basically ask them straight up, you know, what do you think of this? What can we do? What more does it take? Um, and we're going to be hammering out um, the Social Media Bill of Rights all week long. Um, it's, it's myself, uh, Jack Lerner from USC Law School. It's Kurt Opsfall from the Electronic Frontier, Frontier Foundation, Mark Sullivan of PC World, and the organizers of this conference. And it's going to culminate um, on Friday where the entire conference is going to get together and basically demand our rights. Well, I hope you'll issue a communique uh, at the end of the conference. In a moment, I want to recap the seven elements that you and uh, Professor Lerner have proposed in an op-ed that um, I grabbed from the San Francisco Chronicle about uh, two, three weeks ago. But I, I want to ask a specific question about Google, because um, I've been to their campus in Mountain View, a lot of cool things there. And in every building, when you go into the lobby... Uh, behind the receptionist desk or somewhere like that, they have a projection 
of real-time current searches that have just been asked for by a Google user. And it's a fascinating, uh, I mean, I could stand there for hours and look at it, um, but occasionally something pops up that uh, is questionable. It's a sexual request. Uh, it, it could be for pornography. And so um, Google certainly has uh, a difficult task to try to police the activities of its end users who may not all follow the law and who may use Google to try to break the law or to, you know, hire a prostitute or do something illegal. And so it, it creates a kind of tension uh, where our rights are balanced against uh, laws, uh, some of them that are well-intended and others that may be uh, out of date or inadequate for uh, current usage. So what what is the right uh, of a search entry that I make to remain private? Can Can I expect that? Or as soon as I type something into Google, should I assume that that's like typing it onto a billboard in Mountain View? <laughs> well, I think that... Um from a sort of purely technical point of view, I would say that if you're using your home computer from a static IP address, uh, you really do not have a reasonable expectation of privacy. So, for example, um, if you have a well-established connection that's clearly going to your residence and you're using a search engine through that IP address to break the law, to circumvent, I don't know, I mean... The Justice Department has investigated cases like this that involved abuse of minors or sexual predators. Mm-hmm. Um, that is pretty much established in the law as, as a valid thing to discover. But there are privacy fanatics, um, and for good reason, um, at the other side of the spectrum, who, you know, with technology, if you're sophisticated, there are ways to browse the Internet uh, using IP masking or somewhat anonymously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not going to put a value judgment on the motivations for that, but, I mean, I think that's the technical answer to your question. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're asking legally for search and seizure um, purposes under, you know, Sixth Amendment or Fourth Amendment, is there a reasonable expectation of privacy? Um, that's really for a judge to say or a jury to determine. And what are the um, precedents to date? What have judges and juries said? Um, I think that they've pretty much said if you are, they'll look to the terms of, of service, um, first of all. And then as far as IP addresses, I mean, a lot of courts, especially in the music piracy cases, have said, no, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy. And if the complainant can make sort of a prima, you know, sort of a, a ground level baseline showing some laws being broken, uh, they, they are entitled to discover the IP addresses. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Beware. All right, let's uh, recap uh, for our listeners here the seven points that you and Jack Lerner compiled as a kind of a proposed Bill of Rights. Number one, honesty. You say, tell the truth. Don't make our information public against our will and call it giving users more control. Uh, that's pretty much a swipe at Facebook, right? And their recent uh, revision of their privacy policies, which actually make people more vulnerable. Yes. Yes, that is true. (laughs) Okay. Honesty. I live the principle as well. (laughs) And uh, Facebook has responded. What I don't know is in any detail exactly what modifications they made to their revisions. Um. Who 
knows? Um, I am so busy. I don't have time to really figure it out each time they change their configuration. But the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, has at their website, EFF.org, a place that tracks terms of use. Um, I forget what it's called right now. If I think of it before the end of our interview, I'll let you know. But basically, mm -hmm. it, it shows in almost a red line um, the evolution of all the changes to um, terms of use for popular websites like Facebook. Item number two, accountability. Keep your word. Honor the deals you make and the expectations they create. If a network asks users to log in, users expect that it's private. Don't get us to populate your network based on one expect expectation of privacy and then change the rules once we've connected with 600 friends. So yeah, I think, I think that's kind of the mirror image of the first principle. The first principle, honesty, is sort of about your intentions. What do you plan to do with the data? And then the second one is more about don't retroactively change your policies once we've all sort of relied on the initial promise that you made. Mm-hmm. And one that comes to mind under this is uh, Yelp, which I think is an interesting service. I've used it a number of times um, in you know places where I didn't know where to find a restaurant or some other service. But I've heard feedback from a number of people who got positive reviews on Yelp. Then the Yelp sales department called and said, if you pay us 150 bucks a month, uh, your positive reviews will get pumped up to the top of the stack. And uh, there were a few other things that they said uh, were the benefits of being a paid advertiser at Yelp. And some of the same people said when they declined to pay the money that all of a sudden their Yelp file included more negative comments and some of the positive ones that had been there before the sales call had disappeared. So that's the kind of uh, uh, bait and switch uh, and and I don't have any proof here, so I'm only offering this as anecdotal uh, commentary from people. Um, but if Yelp is indeed doing that, then it's very troubling, and it is the kind of uh, shift that you're describing here in, in this Bill of Rights uh, plank. Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth about Yelp. That's been very much um, in the forefront of the legal discussion Um Yelp has been sued in a class action lawsuit for deceptive trade practices in California. They had a case against them in the Central District, which is Southern California, and that case was recently, uh, as far as I know, moved um, and con consolidated with other litigation against Yelp for similar things as you, you've described up in Northern California. And a lot of people are watching those cases um, very closely to see what is allowed. Um, I've also had anecdotal um, information about individual people's experience with Yelp, and my understanding is that the salespeople tell them that it all has to do with their search engines and the algorithms, and it's just kind of out of their hands that the search engines tend to favor, or not the search engines, Yelp's internal sort of um, ranking mm -hmm. programs tend to favor reviews from people who are frequent users. Um, but that really doesn't explain why favorable reviews would disappear or drop off. So I think people have a lot of questions about Yelp, and it definitely goes to um, honesty. And it raises a complication because um, startups like Yelp, um, and Google even was once a startup, um, they use very complicated computer algorithms. And so the behavior is not necessarily predictable, and they're constantly tinkering with them. 
So it is, I'm, I'm sure, difficult to understand, um, both as a potential customer of advertising and also as a salesperson. But obviously enough people thought that something was fishy there that they decided to pursue class action litigation. And in fact, there was an article in April in the Los Angeles Times that Yelp had, in fact, changed some of its business practices with regard to advertising as a result of this legal pressure. Item number three here is control. Let us decide what to do with our data. Get our permission before you make any changes that make our information less private. We should not have data cross-transmitted to other services without our knowledge. We should always be asked to opt in before a change, rather than being told we have the right to opt out after a change is unilaterally imposed. And a lot of people have no idea about what their options are. They never even go to those pages at uh, places like the oh, the free online mail services, Yahoo, uh, Gmail, and, and uh, Hotmail. And they never really see what the privacy policies are, what sharing data uh, with affiliates or, or uh, third parties might be like. And so I'd love to see a lot more transparency uh, in, in those matters, Lisa. Oh, so would we. And I'd like for them to use simple language and make it prominent. Um, one thing that we say a little higher up in the editorial is, you know, a lot of this just preys on the fact that users are unsophisticated or they're just in a hurry. I mean, who has time to read all these licenses in terms of use? Um, you know, the principle is very simple. Let us know what we're getting into. And a company like Apple um, is very dedicated to simple interfaces. And one of the things they said that they always do is if, for example, an iPhone app wants to use geolocation data, which tells people who you are, it always makes you opt in right there uh, in very clear, simple language, do you want to share your location data? Mm-hmm. And something like that is very doable. Well, that said, I've clicked accept on the iTunes license many times, and I have no idea what I agreed to. <laughs> yeah, well, iTunes is a little different. That's just overall agreeing to update operating system. But we're talking about if you're actually iPhone user, iPad user, or right. iPod Touch user, um, there are numerous applications nowadays where you can go places, find your friends, and all that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of applications that want to combine that functionality with other things that you do. So Apple has just put in place a policy where they say, you know, not everyone wants to share where they physically are through their mobile phone. So let's just make sure people understand that, because the creators of these applications are not necessarily looking out for you. And the other side of that, Lisa, is a friend of mine had her purse stolen in San Francisco a couple of months ago called the cops and said, hey, my iPhone's in there. Can you use that to locate the purse? And they said, nah, it's too much trouble. <laughs> oh, wow, that's interesting. So you've got the capability, but they won't use it, even when well, you again, say, sure, you can. Where the, that's where the prosecutorial discretion is now being transferred to law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Item number four, transparency. We deserve to know what information is being disclosed and to whom. When there has been a glitch or a leak that involves our information, make sure we know about it. Well, Apple did disclose that a bunch of iPad users' uh, email addresses were inadvertently uh, released or uh, made available online recently. Yeah, that's true, and uh, that's actually a requirement under California's very restrictive um, privacy laws. Um, In the state of California, our privacy rights are written right into the state constitution. Um, But some companies are better at it than others. Um, some companies are very specific and upfront. 
Um, but as you can see, it happens all the time. And these companies' ability to safeguard our data is not keeping up with the desires that they have to share and monetize that data. Mm-hmm. Number five, freedom of movement. If we want to leave your network, let us. If we want to take our data with us, let us do that too. This will encourage competition through innovation and service instead of hostage-taking. And if we want to delete our data, let us, because it's our data. That seems pretty straightforward. <laughs> I know, kind of a no-brainer, but you'd be surprised, including Facebook, how difficult they make it. Um, sometimes our data lives on, and we get all kinds of explanations for that. But the simple concept here is data portability. Um, so anyone who's interested in this concept can just quickly study up on what that is. And I personally think that all users should insist on that and not, you know, if when they are able to choose providers that respect and enable data portability. Now, Lisa, the last part of this is critical to me. If we want to delete our data, let us. So um, I, I got drunk with a bunch of friends. We took some pictures. We posted them on Facebook, and now I want to take them down. But you described earlier that each photo has a unique URL, and even if I delete it from my page, it lives on on the Facebook server, does it not? That's correct. And uh, they made that privacy change about a year ago. Um, it was pretty quiet. Um, they didn't allow much time for users to comment, but it was a tiny but significant change they made to their terms of use, which basically said, used to say something like, during the duration of your membership, you own the photos and we have a license, um, and you license your copyrighted images to us. And then they made a little teeny tiny change that said something like, well, whenever you post something to us, we own it forever. You can have a license to use it too. And I thought it was outrageous, but people didn't really pick up on it. Um, and Facebook was doing other things too, like changing the format of the news feed that everyday people, regular users were more affected by. So Facebook has had, you know, this kind of idea set up for a long time. And I have never used MySpace. I know it's on the uh, the decline in popularity. Uh, are, are their privacy settings and standards uh, better or worse than Facebook, in your opinion? I haven't studied MySpace, but I always believe in healthy competition in the marketplace. And I personally would like to see MySpace make a comeback um, as a service that is a little more conservative, less aggressive about pushing the boundaries of privacy. I don't know what their privacy policies are, but on the other hand, given that it still has a substantial user base, um, I think they might be, you know, still close to 100 million. Um, I'm not exactly sure of the exact number, but we really haven't heard complaints in the privacy community about MySpace. So I'm inferring that they must be doing something a little bit better. And it's always good to know of the viable alternative. Item six on your proposed Bill of Rights, simple settings. If we want to change something, let us. Use intuitive standard language. Put settings in logical places. Give us a maximize privacy settings button and a delete my account button. This suggests that that's not the case right now, Lisa. <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh if anyone has ever tried to quit or leave Facebook, you will see how difficult it is. And, I mean, is uh, it like trying to get out of the Columbia Record Club 50 years yeah, ago? <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much like that. Or, uh, yeah, I won't draw other analogies, but I think that's, that's apt. Okay. And finally, be treated as a community, not a data set. 
We join communities because we like them, not quote-unquote like them. Advertise to your community if you want, but don't sell our data out from under us. And this is a very tricky area because if you make repeated uh, Facebook postings where you use certain keywords, that becomes part of the analytics of your profile, and then the, uh, the ads start to appear. And uh, sometimes it can be really unsettling because you say, wow, you know, I, I mentioned a certain kind of automobile and all of a sudden they're trying to sell me one. Yeah, that's very weird. And um, that also crosses the line, I think, into something that should be self-evident. But, you know, I don't think that it's appropriate for semantic contextual advertising to capitalize, for example, on people's grief. Um, and also there's other inappropriate results. So I, I think that there's a line there that should be respected. Um, mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for having me on, Peter. Well, I really Lisa, enjoyed our discussion. It's you had my, excellent questions. my pleasure to talk with you, and I'm going to link to your website in the show file at peterbcollins.com. The Chronicle uh, item about you says that you're a Twitter user, so you can go ahead and tweet that this interview will be available uh, later this evening. Thank you, Peter. Have a great day. Great to talk with you. Lisa Borodkin, B-O-R-O-D-K-I-N, here on the Peter B. Collins Show. We continue on the Peter B. Collins Show. We're sponsored in part by the Organic Wine Company. Have you checked out the new Organic Wine Club, the Peter B. Collins Organic Wine Club? Click on the link on my homepage and find out more from the Organic Wine Company. It's a great way to sample earth-friendly wines from the Organic Wine Company. Should we legalize internet gambling in California? I wanna hold them like they do in Texas, please. Fold them, let them hit me, raise it, baby, stay with me. I love it. Love game intuition, play the cards with spades to start. And after he's been hooked, I'll play the one that's on his heart. Well, this is Lady Gaga's debut on the Peter B. Show. Cost me a buck twenty-nine at iTunes. I don't really know that much about Lady Gaga. I just found out that both G's are supposed to be capitalized. And I saw her interviewed on the Larry King show recently, but the sound was off. She looked fabulous. But I have no idea what he was talking to her about. As California wrestles with a devastating budget situation, one proposal is to legalize online gambling. Senate Bill 1485, authored by uh, Senator Rod Wright of Southern California, would do that, and it has some very interesting potential, and it's written in an interesting way. To tell us about it, we turn to the executive director of Poker Voters of America, Melanie Brenner heads the nonprofit organization whose mission is to advocate for the same consumer protections and regulation for online poker players as those offered to players in casinos uh, here in the United States. Melanie Brenner, welcome to the Peter B. Collins Show. Well, Peter, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Nice to talk with you. And in a bit, my friend Mark Lewis, who plays much more poker than I do, will join us. And he knows more about the ins and outs of, uh, of this aspect of gaming. I want to make it clear that um, I'm uh, a sinner. <laughs> I believe in vice. Uh, my game is craps, and that's what I like to go to the casino and play. 
And so I have never uh, uh, risked a nickel uh, in any kind of online gambling. I do occasionally play bridge with strangers uh, at Yahoo's uh, game section, and I enjoy that quite a bit. And if, if there were an opportunity to play it for money, well, my bridge game isn't that strong. So <laughs> I, I don't know if I would. Tell me, as a, the leader of poker voters, uh, do you enjoy a, a hand of uh, poker every now and then? Every now and then I do. I will admit that I have never actually played um, a live game in a, a card room. I have played some online, but um, I, and I wouldn't be very good, I'm afraid, in a live situation because I'm not a very good liar. I don't think I have a poker face. Mm-hmm. So I like something of the anonymity of going online, but I certainly have the concerns about if there's something wrong and I have a problem, I have no one to go to. Right. And currently, set the, the landscape for us, Melanie Brenner. Uh, there are a lot of offshore operations, and there are legal restrictions both at the state and federal level for American citizens who um, uh, transfer money, the, the, the money is under control, and also I believe it is a misdemeanor for a Californian to currently play online poker and other games. Is that true? Well, actually, no. It's not illegal to play. And um, actually, when online gaming began, um, it was a multi-million dollar industry in the U.S. And then uh, in 2006, some um, of our finest in Washington snuck through some legislation, actually on the port security bill, that... Um, is called the Unlawful Internet Gaming Enforcement Act. And what it did was not make playing illegal, but it stopped the banks from handling the transactions of gaming. So before that time, you could really just sit down in front of your computer, put in your credit card, and play. Um, once the UIGEA passed, then the banks were no longer legally allowed to carry those transactions. However, there were third-party processors that then stepped into the void, and we still have millions of people playing online in the U.S. and about 2 million people playing online in California. And uh, you talked about banks. That included PayPal and the other online payment services, right? Uh, Yes. Now, that legislation was actually held up for a while, but it did go into effect June 1st, just the beginning of this month, However, from what I understand, um, there's really been no drop in any of the online play. It's really, as I said, so many third-party processing systems are in place that people can still play. However, as I mentioned, if someone does have a problem and say, for instance, they feel that a game has been rigged or they can't get their money out of the system, and they go to the Attorney General here in the state of California, the Attorney General's office will tell them, sorry, there's nothing we can do. You just shouldn't play. Mm-hmm. Okay. And these uh, third-party um, money services, I, I, I wanted to say money laundering, but, you know, not necessarily laundering, uh, are, are these in exotic locations, you know, like the, the Isle of Wight or <laughs> somewhere? <laughs> the Isle of Man. Yeah, somewhere uh, offshore yes. of Bermuda. <laughs> well, yes, and the sites themselves are all offshore, so you don't have American operators who are running these. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the things that we think is great about uh, Senator Wright's legislation and some of the other legislation that's now happening on a state-by-state basis is that um, all this money that currently is going to these unregulated offshore sites 
we have a methodology to capture that revenue and not only to go to the state, but also to existing license holders in the state mm-hmm. who can't play, who, who don't have the opportunity to compete in this market. And so under this law, even if I lost a hand of poker, it would be a win-win-win-win-win situation because uh, I could uh, go to the attorney general's office and file a complaint if uh, they didn't give me all my money back, for example. Um, I would have some greater assurance because the actual operations have to be conducted in the state of California that uh, in a worst case, I could go knock on a door somewhere and say, hey, dude, uh, you owe me some money. Uh, the state would win because uh, revenue that's currently just completely underground would be brought above ground and would be taxed, um, and and the tax would often be captured uh, by the, the gaming operator so that there would be far less uh, evasion of taxes related to gambling winnings. Any other win scenarios that you'd like to point out, Melanie? Well, if you... Think about it this way. In the state of California right now, there is a casino that 2 million people every year are visiting, and it's not regulated, and the state is getting no income from it, and the existing casinos can't compete with it. And that's what this bill would do, is it would bring that casino, this online gaming that is going on, under state regulation and allow existing license holders to be able to play in that market. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the bill is 52 pages. Uh, I haven't read it word for word, but as I breezed through it, what I immediately picked up is that the bill permits uh, no more than three hub operators to essentially take control of online gambling, and it won't be limited to poker, right? This this would be any legal paramutual betting game that, that uh, is approved by the Department of Justice. Am I right? Well, as it's currently written, the definition of poker is rather broad, and it, but it does have to be a non-banked game. So it does have to be a game where it is, for instance, in poker, where everyone who's playing is contributing to the pot and the money comes from a rake or a, a portion of that um, hand. It's not the house winning the, the bet. So any non-banked game, according to this legislation, would be um, viable. Okay. Um, and the limitation to just three hub operators, what's, what's the thinking there? Because that doesn't seem very competitive to me. Well, um, the way online poker works, one of the things that's most important about it is that you have enough players in the system so that when you go on, go online to play, there are games there for you to play. There's a game that's at your price point, what you want to pay, that has the the types of games that you want, and, and I'm sure that your friend that's going to, to join us who is a poker player can go into even more detail on that. So what you need is to have a system created that will bring enough players together. What uh, Senator Wright's bill outlines is bringing in to the state of California three operators, or if they exist here, they would be chosen through a public RFP process with the criteria for them being outlined in the legislation, and it would be similar to the lottery. So if you think about the lottery, it's um, under contract to the state, but it's run by a private operator. Mm-hmm. And what's important about this is, so we just because we have online poker in the state of California doesn't mean that all the people who play poker in the state are necessarily going to play on a, a regulated system. 
And one of the things that we need to be sure of is that the system that they play on is as good, if not better, than the offshore sites. So you need to make sure the state needs to be certain that the operators that they bring in have the expertise and the financial backing to um, create a very good player experience so that those players in California that go on to the system will stay there and continue to play on the state-regulated system. Right, but as I read the bill, three hub operators, that kind of cuts me and Mark out, because we were on his patio the other Uh night sipping a little wine and uh, uh, whining about the fact that we don't have any Native American blood, so we can't uh, claim uh, those rights and establish an urban casino somewhere. And the way this bill is written, it kind of looks like it's uh, earmarked for uh, Steve Wynn and Harris and Bally, uh, the big gaming interests, uh, to just, uh, you know, basically uh, take over this uh, California market? Well, actually, no. There is Now, I will say that, yes, you guys wouldn't be able to just automatically be a part of this, but if you did own a card room in the state of California, you would then have the ability to set up a portal or a website that fed into the hub system, and you would be able to make money as you brought players into the system. So mm-hmm. there is a way, and, and again, let's, let's take Bay 101 card room down in, in San Jose. Right. They, ha- they would then have the ability to be a part of the online poker network as, at this point, they're completely cut out of that. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, no, I'm not to, too. I'm not too worried about Bay 101. <laughs> <laughs> but, but now, if if you really wanted, um, you and Mark really wanted to get into this, uh, you can. Now we have 91 card room licenses in the state of California, and you could contact someone who had one of those and buy one of their licenses. But you do have to have the license to operate a card room or be a tribal casino to be a part of the system. But it is not simply just the three hub operators who will be making this system work. All right. Well, Mark's going to join us, but first, uh, I got to get my money's worth here out of Lady Gaga. Just like a chicken, the casino takes your bait, I think she's saying. I don't know. I guess I need a gaga translation. Mark Lewis is my friend who plays poker. He is a construction manager here in California. Mark, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me on. Uh, tell our listeners just quickly your, um, your, your poker resume. Uh, do you have a specific game you like to play? Uh, I play Texas Hold'em. Uh-huh. Uh, I play mostly limit, but I also play no limit, and uh, I mainly play in brick and mortar casinos, mm-hmm. and uh, I love to play everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I know gamblers only tell you what they win, but uh, your lifetime record—would uh, you say you're a net winner? Uh, I would say overall I'm a net winner, but uh, I'm not going to quit my day job. That's for now, Mark, you, you talk about preferring bricks and mortar. Have you tried out any of these offshore online uh, uh, gambling parlors? Uh, oh, yeah. I've, I've definitely played, um, especially in the beginning, until I, I got a little more educated from my point of view. And uh, and I, I don't have a great level of, of trust because, from what I know, there's no regulating agency 
before the online. So if you have a problem or if you suspect collusion or if you don't even trust the computer program, that you have no recourse. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen that uh, as was borne out in the absolute poker scandal that uh, that there is no accountability and there is nobody looking out for the interest of the players. And the, in that particular scene, the absolute poker company actually was rewarded because the pros dumped off the site and uh, people went to the site thinking it was softer because the pros weren't there and, and by cheating the players they were actually rewarded with more business hmm. yeah you told me that story the other night and uh, it's the first uh, I've known about it and that's fascinating that in in you know playing in a way that caused the professionals to desert it uh, created a kind of cachet that actually made them money after they uh, allegedly cheated people. And and the people that you would think would be your advocates, those are like uh, trade magazines, are beholden to the industry for uh, the money that they're being paid by um, pushing their subscribers to go work on their sets, sites through their advertising. So if you don't... If you badmouth and they pull their advertising, or if they go out of business, then you as a magazine operator are no longer going to get the money every month that you get by sending those players to those sites. Mm-hmm. So it was only the really the blogging uh, sphere and people um, at the grassroots level that were really pursuing this story until it came out and forced Absolute to admit it. They did a little uh, cursory shakeup. And I think they may have even changed their name now, but uh, they're still alive and well in Costa Rica and advertising very heavily in Card Player Magazine and other like. Now, Mel- Melanie, are you familiar with that yes. uh, particular scandal? Uh, yes. As a matter of fact, it was a 60-minute story about a year and a half or so ago. Uh-huh. And um, it's a perfect illustration of the problem that we have, that, uh, you know, and here it was. They were – now, one of the things that is interesting is – the difference, one of the differences between playing online on the internet or playing in a brick and mortar casino is the incredibly sophisticated software and technology that's available today that allowed them to go back and literally look at hand by hand to figure out that there was a problem. And one of the questions that were asked a lot about this, so for instance, as we, um, we passed this legislation in California, it is an intrastate system, so you must be within the state of California to play. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I'm often asked, well, how do we know? And I say, well, the technology's in place. I don't know exactly how it works, just like when I turn on my TV. I don't know how it works, but I know it's there. Well, it's, based, never been out of the... it's based on IP addresses. The IP yeah. addresses are geographically uh, uh, specific, and so yeah. that's that's how they can make sure that uh, that the signal is coming from California, but there are ways to uh, fake IP addresses and also to ricochet so that somebody from Idaho could link up to my computer here in California, then my IP address would appear at the uh, the hub, and, uh, you know, so there is a way around that. And I, I guess for me, Melanie, one of the concerns is that uh, this d- does not create a new entity uh, similar to the Alcoholic Beverage Commission or 
other state regulators. This creates uh, an agency inside the Department of Justice called the Division of Gambling Control. And I, I just wonder to what extent the Attorney General's office in California is capable of enforcing uh, these regulations because, as I read the bill, at least in one part, it does not permit a disgruntled better to take the uh, the gambling hub to court. You have to go to this gambling control commission, and so that's that's a big unknown for me. Well, as you said, it's a 52-page bill. Uh, it's quite complicated. We're thrilled that we're actually at the point where this is moving forward. Um, but we don't agree with all aspects of it either. I mean, one of the things that's in there is actually the criminalization of people who are playing on offshore sites. And as much as we'd like to see them play on a regulated site, and we think it's important for their consumer protection, um, we don't want to see them being penalized for playing on that. So it's certainly not um, a perfect piece of legislation, but it's a huge step in the right direction to be looking at how do we capture, uh, how do we create the consumer protections so that people like Mark can play online and be comfortable with it, and at a time when the state is terribly strapped for, for dollars to continue um, services and the things that we need, to capture some of that revenue to help with our budget deficit. Well, I'm certainly I'm certainly in favor of that. I have no uh, objection to generating new revenues from uh, a segment of, of industry that is currently, as I said, underground and uh, completely off the books. Mark, uh, what questions arise for you as, as you look at the language of this bill and compare it to your experience both in physical card rooms and in uh, the times that you have played online? Well, one of the questions that I had when you were asking about um, cheating or, or, or inferring that, I, I'm not so worried about the players uh, because there there's always a scam to get around. You can rig something up and go into a brick and mortar and have signals you can just play with each other for 20 years and know what another person is thinking. So there can be collusion, although it's very hard, harder there than online. But I'm more worried about the programming issue, and if we're going to use the government to regulate, which I think is a purpose of the government, um, how how is this bill, or is it described in this bill, how the... Uh, regulatory is going to actually look at the provider and these hubs that they're going to sanction and and make sure that we don't have a God account like in Absolute Poker or we don't have somebody that's looking out, feeding information to a player and letting the house win or knowing, you know, that the house is taking the appropriate rake. I mean, when you're playing a live game, you can watch that the dealer is only taking $5 out of the pot per hand for the house for the privilege of playing. But how do you know that there's not a ghost player on your table when you're playing Internet that's a house taking more of the rake? Do you know, Melanie? Well, I do know that the criteria in the legislation is pretty detailed about the um, specificity of the the hub operators of who can even bid on it. Um, there's also a very uh, large upfront payment due to the state at the time of the award of the um, actual contract. So you would have to be a very sophisticated 
uh, large company with experience at running this to be able to, to even go um, into the process to bid for it. And uh, a part of that also is showing that you have the expertise and the understanding to keep those things from happening. I think there's even language in there that talks about bot playing, that it would not be allowed and the ways to check through that. They have to keep all the records so that at any time the regulators can go in and look through them to make sure that they are all above board. But, but that's, again, that's, that's regulating the players. I'm not concerned about the players. I'm concerned about the person that's that has the site. Who is watching the person that has the site? Saying that just because they're big mega corporations from South Africa or wherever, the Costa Rica or wherever they're based, doesn't mean that they're not taking advantage. You know, you, you, we're giving them absolute powder, power, and then we're sanctioning them with uh, a state of approval from the California. We're going to give them you know, we're, we're basically sanctioning them with this bill if we give them that right. And then how are we going to protect the public if this really is about public protection? I'm, I'm concerned that the bill is really about getting people that are already in the state a little more um, action and getting the state a little piece of the pie, too. And it's not really. They're pretending it's about consumer protection, but it, it's, they don't really care about the consumer this is about money well and, and, and let me let me just add to that melanie and then we'll give you plenty of time to answer but the other thing that i've seen is that allowing industries to regulate themselves because they've got big stakes in the outcome didn't do so well on wall street and uh you know we're watching bp uh, uh you know scramble with this big oil blowout in the gulf so you know i think the skepticism is well placed Yes, without a doubt. But I will tell you, um, there are the regulators in the state of California that have been on point on this are extremely aware of the very issues that you're talking about. Um, as a matter of fact, they have been uh, at national conferences talking about the importance. And yes, not just talking about checking on the players and making sure that there's no problem there, but certainly that these hub operators are above board and that their books are open and that they are very accountable to the state throughout this. Um, part of it also is, and I can't remember uh, in California if these contracts are three or five years, and one of you read the legislation more recently, maybe know that, but if there is a problem, that company would not be allowed to come back. I mean, these are short, you know, fairly short contracts. So they're just because they're in there doesn't mean that they get to keep that. They're they're five years uh, currently. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now the the other question might be a little more basic, Melanie. But um, I, I was explaining to Mark uh, the other night that uh, I stopped playing slot machines when they switched to the computer-based ones where an image comes up instead of, uh, you know, an orange or a cherry that's on a, a, an actual physical wheel. And as I apply that to uh, card games, when you play in a, a physical setting, you can see how many cards are in the shoe. You can see how many decks um, are, are being used in a specific game. But in a virtual game, you have no way of knowing that the deck is not uh, stacked, that the deck doesn't have, uh, you know, it's not missing cards or 
that, that certain cards come up more often than others. And so how do we control for that, uh, again, in an online setting where you have no way of verifying uh, the, the fundamentals of the game? One of the things, as we're sitting here talking about this, it's sort of as though this has not been done anywhere. Now, one of the things um, in Europe where this is a, a very regulated, I mean, and, and in between countries, Sweden and Italy are the most well-known for having recently come in and set up state-controlled systems. And believe me, they are very aware of those kinds of concerns and that their regulators are regularly checking with the operators to make sure that there are those things are not going on. And one of the benefits of playing online as compared to playing in a brick and mortar, I mean, Mark talked about going in and, you know, you can have your friends and there can be collusion going on. You can't go back and recreate that. But in a virtual system, if somebody has a concern, those hands can all be replayed. Everything there, and, and part of the legislation does require that all of that data be stored for a specific, specific period of time in case there is a problem that regulators can go in and discover if there is any impropriety. All right, but, but can I really go to the Attorney General's office and say, you know, on a certain date, I played poker for four hours, and the ace of hearts never, ever, ever came up? And I smell a rat here because, you know, I at one point had the other three aces. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you could do that. That's something that you could recreate. And if you said that and they said, okay, well, let's see, let's run the hands between four and whatever, if that data exists. If you had that concern when you were at a brick and mortar, you have no way to go in and recreate that. Well, that's, well now that, that part is fair. Mark, go ahead. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure because I... You know, there's so many cameras in casinos, about as many cameras in a casino as a bank. But even though I've been playing nearly or almost 20 years, I've never, ever been a witness to watching a camera uh, reenact, you know, the people going back to review the camera for what happened in a hand. Mm -hmm. um, it's just not done. Uh, there's a lot of resistance to that, and uh, and I haven't seen it done. No, No replays, no video replays, huh? Yeah. Well, once again, I find it, it seems like a subterfuge to always talk about the players are replaying the hand because it's so easy to cheat in online gambling. If that's what you want to do, you can have two people sitting in the same room, two different IP addresses, and they're just in the same game together. You can have three people, four people, and they're all just taking one or two people's money in a no-limit game. It's not hard to do. You can sit on your cell phone and talk to your friend across town, be in the same game. You're not going to ever be able to get around that. And you, if you want to cheat, you can. What I'm worried about is what is not seen and what you – when you say you can replay the game because they hold the data, if the company that holds the data is the person that we're relying on providing the information, how, how, can, you, how can you know that the other people that you're playing with all have IP addresses and that they're all real people – opposite you, and they're not just other people that the house is filling the table up with to have a game. Because the house could really create a program that has eight other people that are imaginary and you playing, and you just statistically lose 98, you know, you win 98 cents on the dollar just like a slot machine, and they slowly take your money just like you would if you were any other kind of gambler. 
and that's just the way the program works. How who who says how the program works? Because I can imagine that the online gambling is going to say, you know, I'm not going to show you how it works. I mean, this is proprietary. This is our program. How, well, who this is, is it? Who's the, the expert the, the, on the side of the state that is watching and knows that the programs work and how they that. Well, well, these these were the kinds of issues that come up as you start to create something that doesn't exist, which is new legislation to create this. And that's why um, this is being housed in the Attorney General's office and with the regulators that understand this. And I'm sure there's, um, you know, one of the things that we haven't touched on, and it's uh, in the big scheme of things, I don't think one of the strongest points, but there, there is job creation that comes with this. I mean, part of this is you're going to have to have the people who are trained to be able to recognize that, who have to be hired to regulate this. There are the marketing and advertising companies that will be brought in that have to help market and advertising it. So it's not a huge part, but uh, the, the, your concerns of um, this company, these companies that will be running the hub, I mean, they're under contract to the state. They're not completely... Um, off on their own, there's a very close relationship there, and the state will be very much involved in monitoring that because that's a part of what their role is in regulating this. So then the Attorney General will be hiring uh, experienced dealers to monitor these games? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I would uh, be speaking out of turn if I knew exactly how the Attorney General had planned to staff up for this, but regulating gaming is a function that the state has been doing Four years. I mean, one of the things that we have to look at this is the states, because one of the comments I get is, well, if we just start regulating vices, why don't we just regulate prostitution? Well, we don't have legalized prostitution happening in the state, but we do have legalized poker being played in the state, and Mm -hmm. we do have a regulated industry there. So it's only taking that same industry and moving it to a virtual platform. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, um, Marcus, we get ready to wrap up here. Are you persuaded at all, or um, do you do you feel that there are just too many uh, issues here that the the individual player can't know about or control? Well, I, I'm definitely an advocate for um, online gaming and brick and mortar casinos. I'm certainly not against that. I, I would like to see it stronger, and people are going to play anyway. So I am I am definitely a player's advocate, and um, and and I just don't want to give um, gambling uh, the gambling industry. Uh, 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 it's gaming. They don't they don't say the B. It's gaming, not gambling. <laughs> oh, <I'm> sorry, <laughs> gaming. I, I just don't want to give it uh, give them a golden platter. I want to make them work a little harder on it. I, I really want to. I want a little more transparency, or a lot more transparency. And Melanie, um, I'm at your website, pokervoters.com. Uh, tell uh-huh. us, tell us who is funding Poker Voters of America. Is is this supported by the big casino operators? <laughs> no, um, we do have a small membership base, and then we have um, some corporate donors who are software providers, uh, some payment processing companies. Um, We're a very small organization. We're currently working in California and Florida on legislation in those two states. Um, But if we had uh, more members, we certainly could um, try and have legislation in other states as well. And it's a great opportunity for us to be talking about what we're doing on your show today, so we really appreciate it. All right. 
Well, I want to thank you for joining us. I think it's an interesting idea. Um, uh, like Mark, I'm not at all opposed to uh, finding ways to uh, normalize or, or bring under the law and under the tax stream uh, the spending that's currently well outside or underground. And I'm also, you know, not offended at the idea of people who want to play and lose money or win money online. Uh, my concern is that at a time like this, that the attorney general's office is overwhelmed with a lot of other litigation and to assign new duties to them without uh, a revenue stream to pay for it uh, strikes me as, as problematic. Now, this certainly does, uh, it, it, it sets a floor of at least 20 percent of the net revenues from these three hubs go directly to the state of California. So I can see the, the, the revenue opportunity. But I think that there are a lot of practical questions here and uh, trust issues that need to be addressed before I think the people of California could embrace this. Yeah, the urgency thing makes me nervous, too. It seems like they really want to rush this through and cash in on the gold mine instead of really taking their time to figure it out. Melanie, a final comment? Uh, well, just to, to address that, um, is there is uh, movement on the federal level. There is movement to either overturn the UIGEA or for um, both uh, Barney Frank in the House and Senator Menendez in the Senate have bills that would overturn the UIGEA. If that happens and online gaming is then um, regulated on a federal level, the states are going to miss out on the opportunity of the revenue, and states have always been in control of their own gaming destiny, and this would take it out of the state's hands and have the federal government handling it. And if you're really worried about transparency, I think that's a bigger issue. All right. Well, great to talk with you. Again, the website, PokerVoters.com. Mark Lewis, thanks for your expertise. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Nice to meet you, Melanie. Mark, likewise, I, I hope to uh, maybe meet you in a card room sometime, but don't play with me because I know you'll win. <laughs> <laughs> Melanie, thank you very much. Good to meet you. Thank you. And normally we uh, play a little Roy Rogers Happy Trails to end the program, but this week we lost uh, a guy who was giant for a while in the sausage business and had a big hit record back in uh, 1959 or 1960, Jimmy Dean. Big John, Big John. Every morning at the mine you could see him arrive. He stood six foot six and weighed 245, kind of broad at the shoulder and narrow at the hip and everybody knew you didn't give no lip to Big John Big John Big John Big Bad John Big John Nobody seemed to know where John called home He just drifted into town and stayed all alone didn't say much, kind of quiet and shy, but if you spoke at all, he just said hi to Big John. Somebody said he came from New Orleans, where he got in a fight over a Cajun queen and a crashing blow from a huge right hand sent a Louisiana fella to the promised land, Big John. Big John, Big John, Big Bad John. came the day at the bottom of the mine when a timber cracked and men started crying. Miners were praying and hearts beat fast. Everybody thought that they'd breathe the last, said John. 
through the dust and the smoke of this man-made hell walked a giant of a man that the miners knew well grabbed a sagging timber gave out with a groan and like a giant oak tree just stood there alone big john big john big john big bad john With all his strength, he gave a mighty shove. Then a miner yelled out, there's a light up above. And 20 men scrambled from a would-be grave. Now there's only one left down there to save Big John. With jacks and timbers, they started back down. Then came that rumble way down on the ground. And the smoke and gas belched out of that mine. Everybody knew it was the end of the line for Big John. Big John. Big John, Big Bad John, Big John. Now they never reopened that worthless pit. They just placed a marble stand in front of it. These few words are written on that stand. At the bottom of this mine lies a big, big man, Big John. Big John, Big John. Big bad jump.